Section one of Eureka, a prose poem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Eureka, a prose poem by Edgar Allan Poe. Preface To the few who love me and whom I love, to those who feel rather than those who think, to the dreamers and those who put faith in dreams as in the only realities i offer this book of truths not in its character of truth-teller but for the beauty that abounds in its truth constituting it true to these i present the composition as an art product alone let us say as a romance or if i be not urging too lofty a claim as a poem what i here propound is true therefore it cannot die or if by any means it be now trodden down so that it die it will rise again to the life everlasting. Nevertheless, it is as a poem only that I wish this work to be judged after I am dead. Edgar Allan Poe Eureka! An Essay on the Material and Spiritual Universe It is with humility really unassumed, it is with a sentiment even of awe, that I pen the opening sentence of this work, for of all conceivable subjects, I approach the reader with the most solemn, the most comprehensive, the most difficult, the most august. What terms shall I find sufficiently simple in their sublimity, sufficiently sublime in their simplicity, for the mere enunciation of my theme? I design to speak of the physical, metaphysical, and mathematical, of the material and spiritual universe, of its essence, its origin, its creation, its present condition and its destiny i shall be so rash moreover as to challenge the conclusions and thus in effect to question the sagacity of many of the greatest and most justly reverenced of men in the beginning let me as distinctly as possible announce not the theorem which i hope to demonstrate for whatever the mathematicians may assert there is in this world at least no such thing as demonstration but the ruling idea which throughout this volume i shall be continually endeavouring to suggest my general proposition then is this in the original unity of the first thing lies the secondary cause of all things with the germ of their inevitable annihilation in illustration of this idea I propose to take such a survey of the universe that the mind may be able really to receive and to perceive an individual impression. He who from the top of Etna casts his eyes leisurely around is affected chiefly by the extent and diversity of the scene. Only by rapid whirling on his heel could he hope to comprehend the panorama and the sublimity of its oneness. But as on the summit of Etna, no man has thought of whirling on his heel so no man has ever taken into his brain the full uniqueness of the prospect and so again whatever considerations lie involved in this uniqueness have as yet no practical existence for mankind i do not know a treatise in which a survey of the universe using the word in its most comprehensive and only legitimate acceptation is taken at all and it may be as well here to mention that by the term universe wherever employed without qualification in this essay i mean to designate the utmost conceivable expanse of space 
with all things spiritual and material that can be imagined to exist within the compass of that expanse in speaking of what is ordinarily implied by the expression universe i shall take a phrase of limitation the universe of stars why this distinction is considered necessary will be seen in the sequel but even of treatises on the really limited although always assumed as the unlimited universe of stars i know none in which a survey even of this limited universe is so taken as to warrant deductions from its individuality the nearest approach to such a work is made by the cosmos of alexander von humboldt he presents the subject however not in its individuality but in its generality his theme in its last result is the law of each portion of the merely physical universe as this law is related to the laws of every other portion of this merely physical universe his design is simply synoretical in a word he discusses the universality of material relation and discloses to the eye of philosophy whatever inferences have hitherto lain hidden behind this universality but however admirable be the succinctness with which he has treated each particular point of his topic the mere multiplicity of these points occasions necessarily an amount of detail and thus an involution of idea which precludes all individuality of impression it seems to me that in aiming at this latter effect and through it at the consequences the conclusions the suggestions the speculations or if nothing better offer itself the mere guesses which may result from it we require something like a mental gyration on the heel we need so rapid a revolution of all things about the central point of sight that while the minutiae vanishes altogether even the more conspicuous objects become blended into one among the vanishing minutiae in a survey of this kind would be all exclusively terrestrial matters the earth would be considered in its planetary relations alone a man in this view becomes mankind mankind a member of the cosmical family of intelligences and now before proceeding to our subject proper let me beg the reader's attention to an extract or two from a somewhat remarkable letter which appears to have been found corked in a bottle and floating on the mare tenebrarum an ocean well described by the nubian geographer ptolemy hephaestion but little frequented in modern days and less by the transcendentalists and some other divers for crotchets the date of this letter i confess surprises me even more particularly than its contents for it seems to have been written in the year two thousand eight hundred and forty eight as for the passages i am about to transcribe they i fancy will speak for themselves do you know my dear friend says the writer addressing no doubt a contemporary do you know that it is scarcely more than eight or nine hundred years ago since the metaphysicians first consented to relieve the people of this singular fancy that there exist but two practicable roads to truth believe it if you can it appears however that long long ago in the night of time there lived a turkish philosopher called ares and surnamed toddle here possibly the letter-writer means aristotle the best names are wretchedly corrupted in two or three thousand years 
the fame of this great man depended mainly upon his demonstration that sneezing is a natural provision by means of which over-profound thinkers are enabled to expel superfluous ideas through the nose but he obtained a scarcely less valuable celebrity as the founder or at all events as the principal propagator of what was termed the deductive or a priori philosophy he started with what he maintained to be axioms or self-evident truths and the now well understood fact that no truths are self-evident really does not make in the slightest degree against his speculations it was sufficient for his purpose that the truths in question were evident at all from axioms he proceeded logically to results his most illustrious disciples were one Euclid, a geometrician meaning euclid and one kant a dutchman the originator of that species of transcendentalism which with the change merely of a c for a k now bears his particular name well aries toddle flourished supreme until the advent of one hog surnamed the ettrick shepherd who preached an entirely different system which he called the a posteriori or inductive his plan referred altogether to sensation he proceeded by observing analyzing and classifying facts instantia natura as they were somewhat affectedly called and arranging them into general laws in a word while the mode of aries rested on noumena that of hogg depended on phenomena and so great was the admiration excited by this latter system that at its first introduction aries fell into general disrepute finally however he recovered ground and was permitted to divide the empire philosophy with his more modern rival the savans contenting themselves with prescribing all other competitors past present and to come putting an end to all controversy on the topic by the promulgation of a median law to the effect that the aristotelian and baconian roads are and of right ought to be the solo possible avenues to knowledge baconian you must know my dear friend adds the letter writer at this point was an adjective invented as equivalent to hoggian and at the same time more dignified and euphonious now i do assure you most positively proceeds the epistle that i represent these matters fairly and you can easily understand how restrictions so absurd on their very face must have operated in those days to retard the progress of true science which makes its most important advances as all history will show by seemingly intuitive leaps these ancient ideas confined investigation to crawling and i need not suggest to you that crawling among varieties of locomotion is a very capital thing of its kind but because the tortoise is sure of foot for this reason must we clip the wings of the eagles for many centuries so great was the infatuation about hog especially that a virtual stop was put to all thinking properly so called no man dared utter a truth for which he felt himself indebted to his soul alone it mattered not whether the truth was even demonstrably such for the dogmatizing philosophers of that epoch regarded only the road by which it professed to have been attained the end with them was a point of no moment whatever the means they vociferated let us look at the means 
and if on scrutiny of the means it was found to come neither under the category hog nor under the category aries which means ram why then the savans went no farther but calling the thinker a fool and branding him a theorist would never thenceforward have anything to do either with him or with his truths now my dear friend continued the letter-writer it cannot be maintained that by the crawling system exclusively adopted men would arrive at the maximum amount of truth even in any long series of ages for the repression of imagination was an evil not to be counterbalanced even by absolute certainty in the snail processes but their certainty was very far from absolute the error of our progenitors was quite analogous with that of the wiseacre who fancies he must necessarily see an object the more distinctly the more closely he holds it to his eyes the blinded themselves too with the impalpable titillating scotch snuff of detail and thus the boasted facts of the hogites were by no means always facts a point of little importance but for the assumption that they always were the vital taint however in baconianism its most lamentable fount of error lay in its tendency to throw power and consideration into the hands of merely perceptive men of those intertritonic minnows the microscopical savants the diggers and peddlers of minute facts for the most part in physical science facts all of which they retailed at the same price upon the highway their value depending it was supposed simply upon the fact of their fact without reference to their applicability or inapplicability in the development of those ultimate and only legitimate facts called law then the persons the letter-writer goes on to say then the persons thus suddenly elevated by the hogging philosophy into a station for which they were unfitted thus transferred from the sculleries into the parlors of science from its pantries into its pulpits then these individuals a more intolerant a more intolerable set of bigots and tyrants never existed on the face of the earth their creed their text and their sermon were alike in one word fact but for the most part even of this one word they knew not even the meaning on those who ventured to disturb their facts with the view of putting them in order and to use the disciples of hogg had no mercy whatever all attempts at generalization were met at once by the words theoretical theory theorist all thought to be brief was very properly resented as a personal affront to themselves cultivating the natural sciences to the exclusion of metaphysics the mathematics and logic many of these bacon engendered philosophers one-ideaed one-sided and lame of leg were more wretchedly helpless more miserably ignorant in view of all the comprehensible objects of knowledge than the veriest unlettered hind who proves that he knows something at least in admitting that he knows absolutely nothing nor had our forefathers any better right to talk about certainty when pursuing in blind confidence the a priori path of axioms or of the ram at innumerable points this path was scarcely as straight as a ram's horn the simple truth is that the aristotelians erected their castles upon a basis far less reliable than air 
for no such thing as axioms ever existed or can possibly exist at all this they must have been very blind indeed not to see or at least to suspect for even in their own day many of their long-admitted axioms had been abandoned ex nihilo nihil fit for example and a thing cannot act where it is not and there cannot be antipodes and darkness cannot proceed from light these and numerous similar propositions formally accepted without hesitation as axioms or undeniable truths were even at the period of which i speak seen to be altogether untenable how absurd in these people then to persist in relying upon a basis as immutable whose mutability had become so repeatedly manifest but even through evidence afforded by themselves against themselves it is easy to convict these a priori reasoners of the grossest unreason it is easy to show the futility the impalpability of their axioms in general i have now lying before me it will be observed that we still proceed with the letter i have now lying before me a book printed about a thousand years ago pundit assures me that it is decidedly the cleverest ancient work on its topic which is logic the author who was much esteemed in his day was one miller or mill and we find it recorded of him as a point of some importance that he rode a mill-horse whom he called jeremy bentham but let us glance at the volume itself ah ability or inability to conceive says mr mill very properly is in no case to be received as a criterion of axiomatic truth now that this is a palpable truism no one in his senses will deny not to admit the proposition is to insinuate a charge of variability in truth itself whose very title is a synonym of the steadfast if ability to conceive be taken as a criterion of truth then a truth to david hume would very seldom be a truth to joe and ninety-nine hundredths of what is undeniable in heaven will be demonstrable falsity upon earth the proposition of mr mill then is sustained i will not grant it to be an axiom and this merely because i am showing that no axioms exist but with a distinction which could not have been cavilled at even by mr mill himself i am ready to grant that if axiom be there then the proposition of which we speak has the fullest right to be considered an axiom that no more absolute axiom is and consequently that any subsequent proposition which shall conflict with this one primarily advanced must be either a falsity in itself that is to say no axiom or if admitted axiomatic must at once neutralize both itself and its predecessor and now by the logic of their own propounder let us proceed to test any one of the axioms propounded let us give mr mill the fairest of play we will bring the point to no ordinary issue we will select for investigation no commonplace axiom no axiom of what not the less preposterously because only impliedly he terms his secondary class as if a positive truth by definition could be either more or less positively a truth we will select i say no axiom of an unquestionability so questionable as is to be found in euclid 
we will not talk for example about such propositions as that two straight lines cannot enclose a space or that the whole is greater than any one of its parts we will afford the logician every advantage we will come at once to a proposition which he regards as the acme of the unquestionable as the quintessence of axiomatic undeniability here it is contradictions cannot both be true that is cannot coexist in nature here mr mill means for instance and i give the most forcible instance conceivable that a tree must be either a tree or not a tree that it cannot be at the same time a tree and not a tree all which is quite reasonable of itself and will answer remarkably well as an axiom until we bring it into collation with an axiom insisted upon a few pages before in other words words which i have previously employed until we test it by the logic of its own propounder a tree mr mill asserts must be either a tree or not a tree very well and now let me ask him why to this little query there is but one response i defy any man living to invent a second the sole answer is this because we find it impossible to conceive that a tree can be anything else than a tree or not a tree this i repeat is mr mill's sole answer he will not pretend to suggest another and yet by his own showing his answer is clearly no answer at all for has he not already required us to admit as an axiom that ability or inability to conceive is in no case to be taken as a criterion of axiomatic truth thus all absolutely all his argumentation is at sea without a rudder let it not be urged that an exception from the general rule is to be made in cases where the impossibility to conceive is so peculiarly great as when we are called upon to conceive a tree both a tree and not a tree let no attempt i say be made at urging this sotticism for in the first place there are no degrees of impossibility and thus no one impossible conception can be more peculiarly impossible than another impossible conception in the second place mr mill himself no doubt after thorough deliberation has most distinctly and most rationally excluded all opportunity for exception by the emphasis of his proposition that in no case is ability or inability to conceive to be taken as a criterion of axiomatic truth in the third place even were exceptions admissible at all it remains to be shown how any exception is admissible here that a tree can be both a tree and not a tree is an idea which the angels or devils may entertain and which no doubt many an earthly bedlamite or transcendentalist does now i do not quarrel with these ancients continues the letter-writer so much on account of the transparent frivolity of their logic which to be plain was baseless worthless and fantastic altogether as on account of their pompous and infatuate prescription of all other roads to truth than the two narrow and crooked paths the one of creeping and the other of crawling to which in their ignorant perversity they have dared to confine the soul 
the soul which loves nothing so well as to soar in those regions of illimitable intuition which are utterly incognizant of path by the by my dear friend it is not an evidence of the mental slavery entailed upon those bigoted people by their hogs and rams that in spite of the eternal prating of their savants about roads to truth none of them fell even by accident into what we now so distinctly perceive to be the broadest the straightest and most available of all mere roads the great thoroughfare the majestic highway of the consistent is it not wonderful that they should have failed to deduce from the works of god the vitally momentous consideration that a perfect consistency can be nothing but an absolute truth how plain how rapid our progress since the late announcement of this proposition by its means investigation has been taken out of the hands of the ground moles and given as a duty rather than as a task to the true to the only true thinkers to the generally educated men of ardent imagination these latter our keplers our laplaces speculate theorize these are the terms can you not fancy the shout of scorn with which they would be received by our progenitors were it possible for them to be looking over my shoulders as i write the keplers i repeat speculate theorize and their theories are merely corrected reduced sifted cleared little by little of their chaff of inconsistency until at length there stands apparent an unencumbered consistency a consistency which the most stolid admit because it is a consistency to be an absolute and unquestionable truth i have often thought my friend that it must have puzzled these dogmaticians of a thousand years ago to determine even by which of their two boasted roads it is that the cryptographist attains the solution of the more complicate ciphers or by which of them champollion guided mankind to those important and innumerable truths which for so many centuries have lain entombed amid the phonetical hieroglyphics of egypt in especial would it not have given these bigots some trouble to determine by which of their two roads was reached the most momentous and sublime of all their truths the truth the fact of gravitation newton deduced it from the laws of kepler kepler admitted that these laws he guessed these laws whose investigation disclosed to the greatest of british astronomers that principle the basis of all existing physical principle in going behind which we enter at once the nebulous kingdom of metaphysics yes these vital laws kepler guessed that is to say he imagined them had he been asked to point out either the deductive or inductive route by which he attained them his reply might have been i know nothing about roots but i do know the machinery of the universe here it is i grasped it with my soul i reached it through mere dint of intuition alas poor ignorant old man could not any metaphysician have told him that what he called intuition was but the conviction resulting from deductions or inductions of which the processes were so shadowy as to have escaped his consciousness eluded his reason or bidden defiance to his capacity of expression how great a pity it is that some moral philosopher had not enlightened him about all this 
how it would have comforted him on his deathbed to know that instead of having gone intuitively and thus unbecomingly he had in fact proceeded decorously and legitimately that is to say hoggishly or at least ramishly into the vast halls where lay gleaming untended and hitherto untouched by mortal hand unseen by mortal eye the imperishable and priceless secrets of the universe yes kepler was essentially a theorist but this title now of so much sanctity was in those ancient days a designation of supreme contempt it is only now that men begin to appreciate that divine old man to sympathize with the prophetical and poetical rhapsody of his ever-memorable words for my part continues the unknown correspondent i glow with a sacred fire when i even think of them and feel that i shall never grow weary of their repetition in concluding this letter let me have the real pleasure of transcribing them once again i care not whether my work be read now or by posterity i can afford to wait a century for readers when god himself has waited six thousand years for an observer i triumph i have stolen the golden secret of the egyptians i will indulge my sacred fury here end my quotations of this very unaccountable and perhaps somewhat impertinent epistle and perhaps it would be folly to comment in any respect upon the chimerical not to say revolutionary fancies of the writer whoever he is fancies so radically at war with the well-considered and well-settled opinions of this age let us proceed then to our legitimate thesis the universe this thesis admits a choice between two modes of discussion we may ascend or descend beginning at our own point of view at the earth on which we stand we may pass to the other planets of our system thence to the sun thence to our system considered collectively and thence through other systems indefinitely outwards or commencing on high at some point as definite as we can make it or conceive it we may come down to the habitation of man usually that is to say in ordinary essays on astronomy the first of these two modes is with certain reservation adopted this for the obvious reason that astronomical facts merely and principles being the object that object is best fulfilled in stepping from the known because proximate gradually onward to the point where all certitude becomes lost in the remote for my present purpose however that of enabling the mind to take in as if from afar and at one glance a distinct conception of the individual universe it is clear that a descent to small from great to the outskirts from the center if we could establish a center to the end from the beginning if we could fancy a beginning would be the preferable course but for the difficulty if not impossibility of presenting in this course to the unastronomical a picture at all comprehensible in regard to such considerations as are involved in quantity that is to say in number magnitude and distance now distinctness intelligibility at all points is a primary feature in my general design 
on important topics it is better to be a good deal prolix than even a very little obscure but abstruseness is a quality appertaining to no subject per se all are alike in facility of comprehension to him who approaches them by properly graduated steps it is merely because a stepping-stone here and there is heedlessly left unsupplied in our road to the differential calculus that this latter is not altogether as simple a thing as a sonnet by mr solomon seesaw by way of admitting then no chance for misapprehension i think it advisable to proceed as if the more obvious facts of astronomy were unknown to the reader in combining the two modes of discussion to which i have referred i propose to avail myself of the advantages peculiar to each and very especially of the iteration in detail which will be unavoidable as a consequence of the plan commencing with the descent i shall reserve for the return upwards those indispensable considerations of quantity to which allusion has already been made end of section one